Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump into today's conversation. My guest today is Bakhtash Ahadi. Bakhtash is a communications strategist, executive leadership and transformational coach, facilitator, and multidisciplinary storyteller who helps leaders, companies, and organizations solve their most complex human-centric problems. Bakhtash specializes in strategic communication, leadership development, narrative storytelling, conflict resolution, and cultural diversity to help leaders make a positive impact in their organizations and on society. Bakhtash is the recipient of numerous awards for public service and documentary storytelling. He's worked on race relations in communities across the United States and on the peace process in Afghanistan. Bakhtash is particularly drawn to stories around issues of forced migration, refugees, and vulnerable and underrepresented communities. He's also a certified executive leadership coach, a master facilitator, and host of the Stories of Transformation podcast. He's currently at work writing a memoir about his service as a combat interpreter in Afghanistan and directing a film about the lives of refugees in America. I had the privilege of meeting Bakhtash in May of 2022, and I have found every conversation with him deeply engaging from the very beginning. When I met Bakhtash, I immediately knew I wanted to have him on my podcast. And this conversation is so meaningful. It also leaves so much yet to be explored. Consider this an introduction to who Bakhtash is, his work in the world, and expect to see him back here for more conversations. He has said that he is willing to come back. We didn't even get to stories around his work as a combat interpreter in Afghanistan, his work as a documentarian, and so much more. Bakhtash, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the stories you share that both inspire and challenge us. I'm deeply appreciative of your wisdom, your thoughtfulness, and presence. Please check out the show notes for links to Bakhtash's website, where you'll find more about his work, his films, and his upcoming memoir. Bakhtash, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I appreciate uh, you inviting me. I have been looking forward to this conversation, and I'd like sometimes to just take a moment to reflect on how um, I met my different guests. And you and I met... I believe it was early May at a mutual work event. And, you know, we met in the formal setting. And then for me, one of the memories that stands out is during one of the breaks, I sat down and was talking with you and Camille, and you were asking me questions a little bit about myself, what I do. And I'm like, well, I mean, you're, I'm a coach, like you're a coach, you know that, right? And you're like, yeah, but what, what kind of coaching? I'm like, I'm a, I'm a leadership coach, right? And then you're like, yeah, but Lisa, like, what is it exactly that you do? Because leadership coaching, it's broad, it's general. And I remember having this moment of thinking of like, who is this guy? Why is he asking me this question? <laughs> and then my next thought was like, damn it, that's a really hard question. And it made me think and contemplate for days, weeks, even months, Bakhtash. So that is one of my first memories. And I, I'd love to hear uh, mm. 
maybe initial memories of how we got connected. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. I remember us sitting um, in the lobby uh, at the, of the hotel where you and I were working. And uh, as we were getting to know each other, I asked you that question of what is the specific niche of coaching that you that you practice? And um, I remember us, I remember you then saying, I'm not exactly sure. And I thought to myself, well, maybe it's something that we should think about. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. here we are. And I like to ask my guests as we get started, the I want to hear from you, Bakhtash, this idea of making life less difficult, the name of the podcast, it comes from a quote by Marianne Evans. What do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And I would love to hear from you. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I really like that question. Thank you for asking me. Well, I think I'd go about answering that question by really kind of thinking about what my relationship to time is. And what I mean specifically is, you know, a lot of our problems, a lot of our difficulties and complexities as it pertains to how we navigate the world, in my mind, is a direct relationship in terms of how we understand this concept of time. Um, and so what I mean specifically is when I find myself feeling anxious or stressed out, I always ask myself, you know, is the thing that I'm worrying about something that I can one control? And is it something that needs my priority and attention right now? Right. Or if it's something that I feel um, something that happened in my past that surfaces, or, you know, when I find myself being agitated by a family member that I love deeply, is it the current action that irritates me and frustrates me? Or is it something that happened 20 years ago that's surfacing in my mind? Hmm. And so I always kind of think about, you know, what is my relationship to time and how does it make me feel and where, where's my place in it? And that question alone has really kind of helped me really navigate um, the world in a better, in a better way. How did you come to this place to even be conscious of time in this, say you have a reaction now and maybe it's mm -hmm. something that happened 20 years ago. Tell, me, tell us a little bit about your journey of coming to this place of realization. Yeah. Um, well, what's interesting is um, I, like you, have traveled uh, a lot and extensively around the world. And what's really beautiful about going around the world and, and seeing different, uh, different, different places and being exposed, more importantly, to different cultures is that, you know, we experience life differently within a culture. And I think it's important to kind of define culture. And it could be, you know, one textbook definition could be something related to the norms and the customs and traditions as it relates to a type of people or a group of people, right? But the way I like to kind of describe culture is that it's something ubiquitous, yet it's invisible. And so our jobs as people that step into cultures to say, great, what am I missing and what should I be paying attention to? And um, they're the, not, they're the, there's, there's the language piece of culture that's really, really important that allows you to kind of step into the minds and the windows of that life of how people operate. But then there's the nonverbal communication, right? How people kind of greet each other, how people um, engage each other, how people avoid each other, how people flirt from a distance how people um, um, express 
anger, right? Uh, but the one piece that I think is really curious, especially as it pertains to the American and Western sensibility is this idea that time is money. And so when I find myself going to other places in the world, I'm always like, okay, how do people, how do people think about, you know, meeting at eight o'clock or how do they think about, you know, um, fulfilling a deadline that's due next week. And so if you spend enough time in a culture, you'll realize that there are different notions of uh, time. And what really opened it up for me was, you know, being exposed to like, you know, the German sensibilities pertains to time and then going to India and spending some time there. And that's how, how that's totally different. And then in Mozambique, it was like, you know, everything would be pushed off to tomorrow. Never, tomorrow never came, you know, and mm -hmm. what really broke it open for me, Lisa, was when I went to Afghanistan and I started to understand uh, the relationship between identity and time. Mm -hmm. And what I mean to say is in Afghanistan, I learned the country of my birth, a place that I went back for for three years where I served as a culture, uh, combat interpreter and a cultural advisor to the U.S. military, is I realized that the Afghan identity was based in the past, based on who somebody was, and more importantly, based on who the family was, hmm. right? And why is this important to kind of share? Because it is very different than the American sensibility and the American notion of identity in time. Hmm. Let me give you a specific example. In America, we are always, we are fascinated and in some sense obsessed to our detriment sometimes with the future. We are always working towards something. We're always aspiring to something. So in this way, America is a very aspirational culture. We get a job and once we get a job from college, the first thing our parents and loved ones will say is, you know, go get a financial advisor. And so when we go get a financial advisor, the financial advisor will say, Lisa, you know, um, if you put all your money into great index funds, after 40 years, even if the market collapses twice, you'll have about $2.3 million in your bank account. Mm -hmm. And what's really curious about that is it actually can happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can actually happen. And what's really, really curious is if you ask other people from other parts of the world in different cultures, what they wish to be one day or uh, what they plan on doing next year, what their five-year plan is, they will look at you like you were from a different planet in some sense. What are you mm -hmm. talking about? Mm -hmm. I am who I am and I am based on what I've been and what my family's been. I don't know what I will be. It's in, it's in, it's in the hands of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so this really broke it open for me, Lisa is being exposed to different cultures and particularly being in Afghanistan, understanding the notion of someone's identity and how it's directly related in the, to the past and how their notion of value for oneself is based in who their great-grandparents were and how much land they owned. Mm. Here's a really interesting thing. While there, you know, when there were brick and mortar bookstores, Lisa, did you know what the largest section, do you, take a guess in terms of what the largest section of the bookstore was. Take a guess in America. Um, I'm, I'm like leaning towards some sort of self-help. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. And what, what's really interesting about that is everybody in America, and the reason why is because we are, we are, in, the, we are in the business of recreating who we are. Hmm. 
in America. What do I mean? Today, if you say to me, you know, Bakhtash, um, I am going to run a marathon. And you'll say, you know, my plan is to be ready to run a marathon in four months. I'll say, well, Lisa, I've never known you to be a marathon runner. Amazing. Go for it. And then a year from now, you come back to me and you're like, you know what, Bakhtash, I don't find my, I don't find my, my purpose in, in, in leadership development and coaching. I'm going to go back to med school. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, you know what? It's never too late. Go for it. <laughs> and now people come up to you and, and tell you that they're changing their entire identity as a matter mm-hmm. of physiology, mm-hmm. as a matter of everything. And so not only are we highly individualistic, but I would say radically individualistic now in America, Mm. such that we are in the business of recreating who we are all the time, Mm. right? And so this plays into this idea of our relationship with time and it being deeply aspirational and forward future thinking, right? Where other places in the world don't have this. You are who you are based on who your grandparents were. You can't change that. Right? You will do what your parents want as a matter of your career and your profession. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different relationship to time. And I think I think that's really where, where all this kind of came to be for me. And, and so that helps me really become present now as an individual. Like, how do I want to understand my relationship to time now that I know there are different ways to kind of think about it? It's so interesting, Bhaktash, what you're sharing. And, and one of the things, the contrast that come up for me of how you described the concept of time in Afghan culture, and it's related to the past. America is a country where when the country was formally started, it was started by people who left their past and were cut off from it. And we continue to really, I mean, it's so easy, I think, in American culture to cut. And you hear stories all the time of like, yeah, I don't have any, you know, connection with my family. I just had to, I just had to cut them off. And and people have very good reason sometimes to do that. Um, and it's just so interesting to be curious about that. Right. And I think my family, my, I know where my grandparents were born on both sides, but as I've asked my parents, what about there? And well, on my mom's side, when did, who, and when did they first come to the U S because they, somebody was originally from Germany or that basic area of Europe. And my family is just largely like, yeah, we don't know. No idea. We never asked. Exactly. And so think about this. So, so you're, you're making a wonderful point, right? So uh, as you're kind of sharing this, this idea and this business of 23andMe is very popular in America. Yes. It's a very popular business and it's doing very well because of what you're talking about. But if you go to more traditional cultures, they will tell you verbally who their ancestors were and where they came from. And they tell you how they lived and who married who and how they came to be and how they actually came into the world. Right. And so this business model of 23andMe would never work in a place like Afghanistan or places that are deeply attached to the past. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Bakhtash, you and I talked about this before we started recording of not, not even be neither one of us are sure where the conversation is going to go because you have so many stories to share. So I want to just acknowledge mm-hmm. at the beginning of our conversation that we are only going to scratch the surface. And mm-hmm. I want to um, invite you uh, back for part two, because I know there's going to be so many things I don't get to ask you about, but I would love 
to just ask you in sharing the story of Bakhtash, where mm. does it make the most sense to jump in and tell about you and your journey? Yeah. What a lovely question. Um, well, I am doing a lot of digging into my past because I am writing about uh, my childhood as a part of this project of writing about my time as a combat interpreter in Afghanistan. And I would love to tell you um, the wonderful question to ask yourself and to ask your, your, your audience, something that they may want, may want to ponder is, what is our first memory? What is the first memory that we have as a matter of our relationship to reality and how we understand the world? Now, what's interesting is most people, one, have never thought about that question. Number two, memory is such an interesting thing because most of us in my experience of, as a, of, of asking this question can't pinpoint their first memory. But what people will do is they'll be able to pick, pick, up, pick out a few memories and say, oh, based on where we lived, based on where we were, based on you know, who my mother was, I can say that this was my first memory. Mm -hmm. Right. And what's really curious is once you go through this process of really thinking about what our first, what your first memory is, you may have this really interesting experience of thinking, oh, is this actually my memory or is it a story that my parents told me about who I was? Mm -hmm. Because what's really curious about this experience, Lisa, is I'm sure you do this. I do this. And others that are listening may do this is. We'll tell stories about ourselves when we are one or two as though we had lived them and remember them. <laughs> when in fact, you know, cognitive scientists will tell you that as a matter of child development, memory starts around the age of three. And so how is it possible that I can tell a story about when I was one? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I share this as a way of kind of thinking about a relationship to the past. But I would love to tell you a story as a matter of my uh, sense of who I am. I think a lot of what um, has shaped my life has been my upbringing in terms of my father and my mother having to decide to leave Afghanistan in 1984 because my father's life was put into danger um, when the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan. He was very, my father was very outspoken against the Afghan the Soviet, um, the Afghan government, which was backed by the Soviets. And so my father knew that his time was up because in 1984, just to give everybody some context, uh, the war that was happening between the Afghans and the Soviets was happening in the countryside. But what was happening in Kabul and major cities was that it was a psychological war and it was one based in uh, ideology. So if you didn't buy into the Soviet ideology, you would disappear. Mm. And so family members that we knew were slowly disappearing. And so my parents, in particular my father, decided that it was time to leave. So he told my mother, we must leave. We're going to leave tomorrow. Tell nobody and uh, make sure that um, you're ready to go tomorrow at noon. When I go to work, I'll tell people to come back for lunch. When I come back, we will leave. Wow. And my father at the time had ties with the Mujahideen. And so when we fled, and I'm telling this story as though I remember it. In fact, it's not my parents told me this story because I was um, 
three years old. And so when we fled, uh, my parents, uh, my mother only told her mom and her dad. My father told his mom and his dad. And that was it. We left with quite literally nothing. And we uh, spent seven days and six nights on horseback going through the Hindu Kush mountain range between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And my mother and father, two little toddlers and uh, three Mujahideen fighters with horses were shot at twice by Soviet gunships. Wow. And what's really curious is digging into this story of my parents and how they did this, how they went on this miraculous feat. What was really curious is one of these, I'll tell you a story about my father. It's really interesting. He, um, a Soviet gunship spotted us in between two mountains and we were in a valley. And it took a pass, as he tells it, and saw us and spotted us. And so my father and the Mujahideen soldiers were watching and it turns around and it comes back and it, my parents knew, my father knew in particular that they were going to start shooting. And so what my father did was that he uh, requested that everybody come to a huddle such that when the firing would start, the bombs would be dropped, that if they were going to die, that we were all going to die together. And what's really curious is talking to my father and my mother about this. And I said, Dad, how did you decide to do this? How did this come to your your mind? He said, son, I don't know, but it seemed to make the most sense at the time. And I share this with you, Lisa, because when he said it, he said it in such a tender way that he really believed that it was going to be the end. Mm. It was going to be the end. And so what's really curious is when we are with people that we love, with people that we care about, and we in some sense foresee the end, it's an interesting question to say, what would we do? What would I do? And how will we be together in these last moments? And nonetheless, Soviet ship, gunship comes, shoots, 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 just like they do in the movies, right? And um, the bombs and the bullets missed us. It ended up killing that, 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 that attack ended up killing. They were in the midst of a village. And so a few villagers were killed in that attack. My family was, was saved. Um, and I think to myself, like, you know, I said, mom and dad, what did you think that it was? And my mother said, son, it was God protecting us. It was a force. Mm-hmm. And so what's really curious is to talk about these, these, um, these pivotal moments in our parents' lives to say, how did you know what to do? How did you think of what to do? Uh, And this happens in everybody's life. When there's a fierce loss or a tragic accident, mom, how did you know to do that? Dad, what made you do that? How did you react in this way? And it's an interesting and intimate conversation to revisit that memory with them. Yeah. And I I just have to say, Bakhtash, there's quite a bit of emotion that comes up for me as you're sharing that story and your dad saying, you know what, if we're, if we're going to be killed, I prefer that we're all together. And to extend that question to, you know, just for a split second, I was like, well, if I knew it was Mm. the end for me, what would I want? And, And it's like, oh, I'd absolutely want to be huddled together with my closest loved ones. It, it's it really is incredibly moving, and I'm grateful that you are here 
to share that story and your dad and your parents are, you know, uh, alive to be able to share those reflections with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. And, and, and I share this because, you know, this is the, the ultimate equalizer that we all have. Mm-hmm. Depending on what a person's belief system is, the one thing that everybody knows is that this life is temporary. Mm-hmm. So now with this understanding, what will we do? with this time that we have? What will we do with the people that we love? How will we be in relationship with them? How will we seek to, instead of trying to change them, but instead inspire them? How will we um, pay attention to the things that we should care about? You know, what's interesting is I've done a lot of thinking about regret recently. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I think everybody in some sense knows that when people are on their deathbed, they regret the things that they didn't do in life. Right? And I think that's true. But I would also like to add a, a nuance, a greater nuance to that response that people buy into, is I actually think we regret the things that we cared about when we do feel regret. Mm. Right? It's, you know, when we were working all those hours and not being with our significant other or our children or our parents or whoever, it's not that we didn't like the work. It's not that we didn't flourish in the work, but it's about, I think, caring about the wrong things or the things that shouldn't be the priority in our lives, Mm. right? Or checking email nonstop. It's like, why did I care about external validation so much? (laughs) Why did I care so much about, you know, how many likes I got? Why did I care so much about what that person thought about me? Right? It's not necessarily what we do, but I I quite literally think it's about the things that we cared about that we regret so much in life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it really gives, I mean, it gives me this sense of pause because it is, for whatever reason, so easy to get wrapped up in the things that don't really matter in the end. And when we go through significant life experiences, loss, it it really, it, it strips away all the extraneous things. It strips away all those things that don't really matter. And I have found in my own journey, there's times, especially when I lost my first husband, everything was stripped away except for the most important things. And I remember committing to never getting wrapped up in the rat race again and never getting spun up by insignificant things, right? And guess what? I get spun up by insignificant things, you know? And and, and so I actually find it quite difficult in the mundane, ordinary days sometimes to not get spun up in all that stuff. And I'd be curious of what are your thoughts about how we, how we keep, I don't know, like how we keep the most important things, the most important things, or how we keep returning to those things? I mean, what are your thoughts around that? What a lovely question. Um, in some sense, that is, you know, the key to living a happy life mm-hmm. is implementing a practice that's going to allow us to really keep what matters most close to the heart. Yeah. Right? Um, for me, I, um, I, uh, I often do this. This may sound in some sense really 
morbid, but I think it's really important. And it's the idea of meditating on death. Mm. Right? And so let me share specifically how that came to be. So I, I went to, to Afghanistan to serve as, a, as an interpreter and I got sent to combat a number of times, a number of times. And I just remember how fragile life can be, how fragile life is and how quickly it can be taken away. Yeah. And so that experience will never leave me. And for the longest time, it was really, really hard to kind of move through that experience when coming back. But now I'm deeply grateful that I have it mm-hmm. because it allows me, as I think about how that shaped and formed me, it allows me to remember what's really important, mm-hmm. what's really important in life. And the physical representations of that are uh, all around us. And the most significant is I often try to walk to a cemetery um, before too much time passes. It's an interesting place to go, not because it's sad. I don't think of it that way, but because it actually instills a greater sense of not only appreciation, but also urgency to do the things that I really want to do in life before it's too late. Yeah. So in that way, I, I, I like to meditate on death because it shows me that, you know, this is the equalizer. This yeah. is where we're going. And what will we do about it? Mm. What will we do about it, Lisa? Right? That's the question. And so maybe that's that's useful to you and your audience to kind of hear about that. I resonate so deeply with what you're sharing and and also recognize I'm not sure I would resonate had I not gone through a major loss early in my life and been through an experience of mm-hmm. losing my my first husband. And so I have noticed over time that many people are resistant to going there, talking about thinking about death and dying. And I and I get it. And yet going back to the culture piece, that's not the case in every culture mm. around the world. Um, and it's not just American culture, but often in, in Western cultures, we kind of like as 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 intensely focused as we are on the future, we don't want to talk about death and dying. And I would be interested in hearing your thoughts on what do you think is that resistance? Mm. Yeah. Well, one, I, I don't think. I think in some ways, at least in my experience in America, Lisa, is, you know, we are so incredibly, obviously very privileged. But what we do is we protect ourselves from, from that. And, and, and this is the most, this is the, the biggest, I think the most important kind of demonstration that is uh, most of us don't live with our parents when we have children. Most grandchildren don't live with their grandparents. Mm -mm. And so what's interesting is since everybody has such separate lives and we send our parents to nursing homes, we in some sense are are detaching ourselves from uh, the thing that's inevitable. We are protecting ourselves in some sense from the deterioration of the people that we love. Mm. And so that distance from the people that brought us into the world Let's us know that actually takes us away from 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 that from that reality. 
And it starts when we're, when we're kids, because we don't live in a multi-gen, most people don't live in a multi-generational household in America. Right. And that's not the case in other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. The question that's coming up for me, Bakhtash, is going to like kind of bring us back to your story a little bit. And I'm wondering, how was it for you growing up in America? You were born in Afghanistan. You, your parents left there um, for the security of your entire family when you were very young. I, I think the question I want to ask is like, what was, how much realization of the different cultures did you have when you were young? Like where, how was that? How were the cultures integrated into your life? Because here you are growing up in America. And obviously we're already talking about the stark differences of Afghan culture, American culture. Um, so it's not a very well-formed question, but I'll just stop talking and see where it takes us. No, I think I understand the essence of your questions. How did this come to be? How did I learn the differences and how was my upbringing kind of, in some sense, um, informed and or um, uninformed by this reality. Um, well, I have to tell you, growing up in America, it's interesting. And, you know, America is a very diverse place and it's not a monolith. But where my family was brought to America is a place called Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And Carlisle, Pennsylvania is a beautiful place. In, uh, and what's really curious about Pennsylvania is that it always gets on the list of the top 25 most livable towns in America. Mm -hmm. okay? So my family went from a war-torn country to refugee camps in Pakistan to all of a sudden one of the most intimate little towns in America. Mm -hmm. Safe, beautiful. It's a little college there called Dickinson College. There's farms all around, dairy farms. Right? The Amish are close farm. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, in fact, I'd love to share a little quick joke about uh, how, about my father made this joke when he first came to America. You know, he knew very little English, but when our sponsors from the Lutheran Church were driving us around Carlisle and in around Carlisle, my father noticed some people and he asked one of our sponsors, he said, George, you know, um, who are these people that have big black beards and wear black clothes? And George said, well, they're the Amish. They're the Mennonite, they're Amish. And my father said, well, that's really interesting because I'm from Kandahar and everybody in Kandahar has big black beards and wears black clothes too. <laughs> that is awesome. He thought God was playing some sort of sick joke on him or something. <laughs> that is awesome. And so <laughs> such a funny thing, such a funny thing. And, and, and the world can be that magical and that humorous and that, and that comedic if we look at it through that lens. Yes. Anyway, so so we grew up in this little we grew up in this little town, and there wasn't there weren't any other Afghans, there weren't any other Muslims, there wasn't any any other representation of what it meant to be from my region of the world, that being Afghanistan. And so, um, what's really curious is how how difficult it was initially. Okay. And let me let me explain. This is something that I'm writing about. I um, you know, I was five years old. My parents came to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Lisa, and you know, my parents were they're, they're they're wonderful people, and you know, they are not educated in the Western sense. They didn't really finish high school, and they came to America, and they had to learn how to read and write and learn new language, and 
understand what taxes are all about and, <laughs> you know, how to shop for, you know, a multitude of different things in a grocery store. Yeah. They had to learn how to drive. They had to learn different nuances related to culture. And so my parents were really, really, really um, interesting in that way because they were like, well, we took our children out of harm's way and we brought them to a beautiful place. So they'll be safe and they'll be fine. Hmm. And what was really interesting is, you know, as, as, as I'm kind of doing a lot of digging into my memory, is I remember um, the first few years of coming to Carlisle and it being extremely difficult because nothing felt right. The food I didn't like. Mm. I didn't understand anybody. I don't remember. I don't remember having a conversation in my life until I was six years old, wow. seven years old. I don't remember having a conversation. I don't remember uh, words actually until that time. And what's really interesting is um, I didn't. Um, I didn't realize how impactful it was to me as a young boy to not fit in. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean to say is now as an adult, uh, notions and feelings of inadequacy surface now based on my experience as a child, mm. of feeling like an outsider, mm. of being poor, of not knowing English, of uh, being from this place that nobody knew of or could pronounce the name of or anything. You know, the, the, the closest reference point that our sponsors had, for example, was Italian culture and Sicilian culture. <laughs> and so Not we would go too close to, places, to Afghan culture. <laughs> and, so, and so we would go to many people's homes, Lisa, and they would serve us lasagna. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, the intention there is sweet. Yeah, <laughs> it's so sweet. It's so sweet. <laughs> because in a world in the 18, in 1980s, there's no Google. Right. right. And there was nothing written in Encyclopedia Britannica about Afghanistan because that is a Western that was the, that was developed in the UK. Mm. And so that lens of understanding this far off place known as Afghanistan was in some sense unheard of. Like, what is this place? Yeah. What is this place and who are these people? And so I share this with you because when I was a kid, I used to get bullied a lot. Mm. I used to get beat up a lot. And what's really interesting is, um, as I kind of would dig into my memory as I was writing about my childhood, Lisa, I remember never telling anybody and also, more importantly, never crying. And the reason why that's important is because, um, in some sense, I realized, I, at least at that time, I felt like I deserved it because I was so different from everybody else. Right. And so this is a memory that I had totally forgotten. About. The yeah. fact that I would never cry when I would get beat up. Wouldn't tell my mom. Wouldn't tell my teachers. I would just take it. I would just take it. And I was, as I was writing about my childhood recently, I told my parents about it. And what surfaced so it was really amazing is I told my parents, like, mom, dad, you know, I, I love you very much and I honor you very much. And I understand the sacrifice that you went through. And what you don't realize about being raised in America, at least at that time, was that we may have been physically safe, but Ilya, my brother and I, we did not feel psychologically safe. Yeah. We actually didn't know left from right, right from wrong. We didn't know that we could stand up to people that were hurting us. 
We didn't know that we shouldn't take this abuse or harassment or any of that because it wasn't part of the lexicon of my family and my parents saying that because they, in some sense as immigrants, didn't feel like America was theirs. They didn't feel like this, you know, everybody has a right to America, that you should defend yourself. That wasn't part of their understanding of this place. And so what's interesting about being a young child is in some sense, you're a clean slate. And so you take on what your parents and those around you say. Yeah. And so my parents, they didn't have the language quite literally to describe who we were in this new world, right? They didn't, they didn't know how to say like, son, we can't afford that. We don't have the money for it. They would just let me cry my eyes out because I wanted something, right? Mm. Well, he'll get over it. Or, you know, um, they would say things like, you know, eat the food. It's implied if you don't, even if you don't like it, even if my taste buds didn't didn't want it, like cheese and milk and stuff like that. (laughs) And so, you know what I mean? This is a really interesting thing to be a kid in this world to say, gosh, I can't even, I don't, not only do I not know how to navigate it, but I'm not allowed to navigate in the ways that feel right. Mm. And so I shared this with my parents um, during 2020 and 2021, the year of you know, isolation, lockdown. And it was probably the most important adult, the most important day of my adult life wow. is to share this piece with my parents. because. They had no idea what we went through. Mm. And so for them, it answered a lot of the questions that they had in terms of, you know, questions about who I was and where I am in the world and things, you know, questions they have in terms of where I'm not supposed to be in their eyes or where I am supposed to be, but have have come up short in their eyes. Mm. Right. So it gives them the context in terms of this childhood that they thought would be so easy. Um, they didn't know these pieces, right? Because their frame of reference is so different. Yeah. How, if I may ask, how how did they respond to learning these pieces of your journey? Mm. Yeah. Well, my mother was very, she was very, she received it with a lot of uh, appreciation uh, it was a it was an emotional moment, so she embraced me. Um, she was very much hugging me, and she basically apologized. And what was really interesting is, you know, like what people have to realize is that you know it's not anybody's fault; it's just a matter of circumstance. Yeah. And so my mother, my mother, I just I kept I kept on having to say to my mother, you know, mom, it's not your fault. I I, I just wanted you to know. And what was really interesting is, you know, my father didn't know what to do with that information. Mm. He didn't know what to do with it. And so we just kind of um, just witnessed and just received it. And I think for him, it was a really interesting thing to kind of say, wow, this is something that our kids went through that we had no idea about. Mm. Um, But I share this with you because I think what I learned, Lisa, is that I wanted to revisit my memory. I wanted to understand what was happening in my life. I wanted to understand why certain feelings and emotions would come up in my life, why I would 
you know, let me, let me kind of share this with you. What I've learned is the moments in which I found myself to be most disappointed in myself come back to my childhood. Mm-hmm. They come back to my fundamental flaw is what I like to call it. The idea that, you know, the moment where I felt like, you know what, I wasn't good enough to talk to that girl because I thought she was too pretty. Or I wouldn't negotiate for a salary because I thought, you know what, like, who am I to ask? Mm. Or I wouldn't defend somebody, even I know, even even though I knew that, um, you know, they shouldn't have been treated that way, even though I was witnessing it. These are moments in my life where I was deeply disappointed in myself after the fact. And I thought to myself, mm. okay, enough is enough. Why is this happening? Mm. Why is this feeling even taking over my mind, my thoughts? and coming into the world as actions or inaction and it came back to the schoolyard where i would be beat up and bullied this feeling of inadequacy like i didn't like i didn't deserve it Mm -hmm. and so i share this with you because as an adult we are so we are so much that little five six seven year old lisa we are very much that child uh, with a whole bunch of experience on top of that. And what's so interesting is that little girl, in my case, that little boy, would surface all the time, except I didn't know the root experience for it. Yeah. And so I found it. I mm. found the root experience. I found the foundation for this feeling of disappointment in myself. Mm. And now what's wonderful about knowing this is. Once I've kind of captured that that memory and or that experience, I think to myself, great, what do I want to do with this information? Because now I treat memory as information. Mm. What do I want to do with this information? And so now that I know when it surfaces, I can manage it. And if I can manage it, I can say, will I let this affect my decision in this current moment or not? Mm. And so now I'm able to kind of have some agency over this, over this feeling. And so I share this with you because. Um, it was an incredible, incredibly important revelation for me in terms of knowing who I was and what had happened to me and how that that surfaces now. Yeah. And so I advocate for those that are listening to to really dig into memory to say, what is your first memory? What are your first poignant memories? And what are the moments in your life when you were deeply disappointed in yourself? And is there a thread that you can pull hmm. between all these moments? And my theory is that you can. And if we dig hard enough, there is an experience that connects all of them together. There is, there's so much in what you're sharing. And I'm really grateful as you share these stories, Bakhtash. And there's a, a several different things that come up. But let me just start with this, with sharing with your parents your experience as a child that they weren't aware of. And the courage and the bravery that it took for you, um, first of all, just to go back in your own memories and say, what, what is it, right? To, to say, okay, there's something bigger than what's happening in the present moment. What is that? I think it takes a lot of courage to be willing to dig in, um, to have that conversation, to, to say to your parents, this is, this is not. I'm not coming and blaming you for this. I'm sharing this part of me, this experience for me. And 
you know, implicit in kind of what you're sharing, I hear this message of like, you know, we all were doing the best that we could in the moment, right? Your parents were doing the best they could. You were doing the best you could. And even in through those experiences, there's hurt, there's pain, there's rejection that can stay with us. And I think it's got to be, it's got to be an incredibly difficult thing as a parent, you know, because the vast majority of parents and clearly your parents wanted the best for you and your siblings and made major life changes and sacrifices to, to create that safe environment. And yet then to hear, oh, wait, it actually wasn't safe. Um, it's, I mean, there's, there's just a difficulty there that, um, you know, I hear other stories of my friends who have shared pieces of their story like this with parents and they have not, their parents, you know, just weren't, able to hold that space and receive that and Mm -hmm. um yeah so there there's that part of your journey that part of your story is I think it's really powerful and it's um yeah I see a lot of courage and bravery there from from you you and your parents stepping into that well I, I appreciate you sharing that and saying that I think I think it takes courage to know about who we've been actually let me say this again i think it takes courage to meet yourself i think it takes courage to meet yourself a lot of this modern world is about pleasure and escapism but i think in some sense the purpose of our lives is to meet who we actually are right and and now that i know the things that were a part of my upbringing and I've been able to really kind of spend a lot of time thinking about them. What's wonderful is the thing that makes us so beautifully human is that we have agency. Mm-hmm. So it no longer, now that I'm aware of it, I no longer have to let it, I don't have to let it define me. It was a thing in my life. Mm-hmm. Just like there are things in our lives that happen. And so it is an experience that we've had. It will come into our lives over and over again. Certain things will trigger them to come into our lives. In our life, in our jobs as, as, as adults, those that are seeking to be, you know, um, let me say this, say it in this way, those that are learning the art of growing up, mm-hmm. our jobs are to, to say, will I let this affect me going forward in a way that's going to be detrimental? Right. And and that is that is when you're in a place of growth. That's mm-hmm. what I've learned about myself is to become aware of these things that are in our lives to say, wait a second, now I have a choice. Will I let this overcome me? Will I give in to this? Right? Will I let this define me? And what's interesting is, you know, things that are therapeutic allow us to move through these emotions and move through these thoughts, whether it's having a therapist, whether it's going on a hike, whether it's a beautiful conversation, whether it's a courageous conversation. Our jobs, in some sense, are to move through the things that we have been hiding from. The art of growing up is a phenomenal phrase, Bogdash. I just had to like write that down. (laughs) 
that yeah. is let's just let's plan on that being the whole theme of part two of our podcast <laughs> conversation. <laughs> I would love that. So I would love that. It's there. I love that. The one other thing I wanted to share, the one other thing I wanted to share is um, for those that that may get some value of this conversation in terms of you know revisiting our memory and our past and understanding this idea of our relationship to time is you know I, as you well know you know I work in storytelling so I work in um, hearing stories telling stories uh, filmmaking and so as part of my coaching practice. I am very much interested in, in telling stories. And so what I do as part of my coaching practice is I very much uh, ask people, you know, who is the hero that they want to be? First and foremost, who is their hero? Or if they had to be a superhero, who would they be? Right? These are fantastic questions. Mm-hmm. But then are beautiful questions to say, you know, who would you be for that six-year-old Lisa? What is the type of hero that she needed? Mm. And this is exactly what gives me motivation, inspiration when I navigate the world is when something difficult comes up and I, and you know, that little boy surfaces and I realize that I'm in a complex situation and I'm being, you know, potentially abused or somebody saying something, you know, disparaging or somebody's being unfair there's something unjust happening the question that i always ask is what what did that five-year-old and six-year-old backpush need who was the Mm -hmm. hero that he needed because that is the answer to how to respond to the situation i'm currently Mm -hmm. who is the hero that you needed when you were young yeah and our jobs i believe in some sense is to step into that responsibility because i think you know rumia the persian poet who's very, very much, you know, part of Afghan culture, you know, he says, um, um, the wound is where the light comes in. Mm. Okay. So it's this idea of, you know, our sense of purpose in some ways is to be the thing that we needed when we were in most pain, Mm. is to create the thing that we needed when we were most hurt, is to have the conversation that we know that we need to have in order to get over the um, the betrayal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so in some sense, that is the that is the purpose of our lives, Lisa. Yeah, there's again, there's so much there, Bakhtash. And it's um it's really powerful, I think, what you're sharing. Like who who's the hero that the five or six year old version of ourselves needed? And I think mm. I have been on this journey of discovering that through doing some some emdr therapy and which you know is kind of like a guided process of kind of going back to those core memories that show up very vividly in our lives now even though we're not aware of those and part of that process for me has been once you know we go through the process getting to a point you know my my therapist asked do you want to replay that lisa do you want to just go back in your mind do you want to kind of replay how you wish the situation had been and at first I was kind of like ah, it's kind of, it seems weird and yet as I've, I've as I've done it it's become incredibly powerful where just in my own mind it's like going back and writing the script to a film 
of okay this this is how it could have played out and wow i wish in that moment my dad had shown up and said this instead of that and wouldn't that have been amazing mm. and the impact that that has made for present day you know lisa is really amazing and powerful and right and that can be done through lots of different processes that the mdr is just what i have um done but i i think that there's incredible power there of saying yeah what what did i need and how can i be that for myself now but and i think in order to kind of get there right lisa we have to do the inner work yeah we have to do the inner work what you know you as a leadership coach me as a What's that? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so my question, because we we can get deep, we're like we're we're in the deep end, right, Bakhtash? And sure, you know, I just in the coaching realm, we are invited in to do the inner work, as you say. But I would really be interested in hearing you talk about what is that inner work for someone who perhaps hasn't been in situations and contexts where they've been invited into the inner work. Um, how would you describe that for someone who might be listening and being like, what are you all talking about with the inner work? It's a lovely question. Um, well, I think the way I would kind of describe it is having a deep sense of curiosity for the things in our lives that we um, just have been putting off for a very long time and really just kind of, and this is the way I think I would describe it, is having a curiosity about the person that we've become and then also having the courage to, to, to revisit the parts of our lives that we have forgotten about intentionally or unintentionally. And what's really helped me is writing. It's just to start to think, you know, I personally believe the most important relationship is the one that you have with yourself. And the second most important relationship you have is the one that you have with your parents, because in some ways, in a very real sense, that is how we were able to understand the framework for our lives at a very young age. Yeah. Right. Or those that took care of us. And so what I would do is um, pull out a blank piece of paper and simply ask, you know, what is the relationship I have with my father? What is the thing? What are the things that I love about him? What are the things that frustrate me about him? What if, what feelings does he elicit from me and just start thinking about life in those ways. And then you can actually throw those questions back onto yourself and saying, you know, what are the ways in which I would describe myself? Not what I do, Lisa, but who I am. How would I describe who I am today? What adjectives would I use to describe who I am? Uh, and then Reach out to your friends and say, you know, how would you describe who I am and, and how would you describe the feeling that, you know, I give you? Like if you were to describe me to somebody else, what is the emotional feeling that you would give to me? 
What do I elicit from you when I'm with you? And I share this with you because I think human beings are like music. Mm. And what I mean to say is human beings, just like music, elicit a response and a feeling from us. Yeah. So when we listen to a song from our, from our younger years, we go back to that 16-year-old Lisa <laughs> when you listen to that song, right? And what's interesting is we have to say, what is, how, how is it so magical that music is able to do this? Well, that is what art is. That is what creation is. Creation is to, in some sense, really elicit a feeling from us. But what we forget, too, is we as human beings are creations. In fact, we create other humans. Yeah. Who knows how we are really created, but we are also creations. Yeah. And so a beautiful way to kind of get into the space of self-discovery and self-awareness is to ask others how they experience us. Mm. How does somebody experience Lisa? Not who is Lisa and what do you think of Lisa? That's not what we're asking. Mm. We're asking, how do you experience her? How do you experience Bakhtas? Mm. And that's a beautiful way to kind of get into an intimate conversation with a friend or family member to see exactly what you do to them and what they and how they see you. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's a useful start. Yeah. I love that. And I and I wanna I wanna just highlight the word curious. I really appreciate one of the things I've appreciated about all my conversations with you, Baktash, is just how you use the word curious. Well, that's really curious. Um and curiosity has become near and dear to my heart because I've realized it it pushes the pause button on judgment and my brain makes judgments I'm going to make judgments and yet if I can catch myself and say oh well that's a judgment what if I shift to curiosity and ask a question about this or ask a question about this person right and so I really appreciate how much you use the word curious and are curious Um, and I want to just highlight it because I think this process that you're describing really needs the foundation of curiosity. Exactly. Thank you for saying that, Lisa. I think that's right. It is a radical curiosity about oneself and about the world. You know, what's interesting about spending time with children Mm. is if you spend time with children, which I love to do, is they look at the world like it's brand new. (laughs) Watching a butterfly fly through the eyes of a child is magical. Yes. And so really what I'm saying is to revisit the things that we think we know about the world with a sense of curiosity, a radical curiosity, to revisit and say, do I actually understand this thing that I've been neglecting or that I haven't seen in a while? To include oneself. And you would be surprised at what you will find when you ask the most basic questions of who are you? How do you perceive yourself? How do you navigate the world? 
How do you understand your relationship with your parents? What do you wish was better? Mm. Really foundational, fundamental questions and approach them not with a sense of, like you said, judgment or fear or, you know, trepidation, but instead with a sense of deep imagination. What could be in a world that I haven't considered yet? Mm. Just like a child looks at a butterfly when the butterfly flies around. Mm. Mm. I love you bringing in kids and their curiosity. I just spent the weekend with my two-year-old niece and mm. her her parents kind of set me up for this. They were like, call her over here and then ask her like if she wants a, a cookie. And like, there was a particular way to do this and stuff. So I like call her over and it's like, would you like a cookie? And there was like this split second pause. And then her face just exploded with excitement. And she was just like, yes. And it's so funny and sweet and wonderful because it's not the first time that she's had a cookie. Right. But, but to have that joy and that excitement it almost, it, it makes me think of, wow, if we could develop that joy and that excitement and the, that anticipation mm-hmm. of asking ourselves and each other these basic questions of who are you? What lights you up? What brings you meaning and purpose in the world? And to have just that excitement and be so excited and alive in anticipation of, of those yeah, the answers and what we can discovery, discover, it really, um, yeah, the ki- kids are the greatest teachers, aren't they? <laughs> Absolutely. We should be spending time with old people and young people yeah. and our best friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's my personal belief. Hmm. Well, Bakhtash, I, I mean... I've now said it multiple times, but we need to just continue this conversation. And I am incredibly grateful for your your time, your willingness to share. And I know we have barely scratched the surface. So I'd like to formally invite you back for parts two, three, four. Let's just see where it goes. Um, before we before we wrap up for today, can you say a little bit about what you do? You've, you've mentioned, I mean, the, the coaching, the, the filmmaking. I will include links for people to find you. You also um, have amazing podcast uh, stories that um, I have really enjoyed listening to as well. Um, but say in your own words a little bit about what you do and how people can find you and learn more about you and the work you do. Sure, sure, sure. Um, gosh. Yeah, so I like to think of myself as a communication strategist. Um, I've also taken roles as it pertains to being an advisor, facilitator, uh, transformational leadership coach, uh, multidisciplinary storyteller. But really, uh, I think quite literally, I think if you boil it down, Lisa, I work in the space of communication to better understand human dynamics. Mm. And... um, the, the things that I love to do most is, um, is it story, understand story, understand the most intimate and poignant moment, moments of that hero's journey, so to speak, 
Um, I believe in inspiration. I hope to inspire others. I, I think vulnerability is, is the most important way to be with the people that we want to be close to. In fact, I urge people that are listening to try to have an intimate conversation without being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so, so just to kind of pull back out. So uh, I use language and communication to basically help leaders, companies, and organizations solve um, their most human, their most complex human-centric sort of problems. So you and I work in, in coaching with, with corporations. I also work in documentary filmmaking to tell the most, what I, what I believe to be important stories about marginalized communities from places like Afghanistan and the greater Middle East and the refugee story. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. That's kind of how I think about my contribution to the world is how do we uh, share stories that will greater inform us about who we are in the world and then also um, inform us about the things that we know very little about or things that we thought we knew about but yet didn't have this perspective on it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for sharing, Dr. Tosh. It's my pleasure. Thank you for being interested. Thank you for your curiosity. Thank you for your engagement. And um, I just thank you for, for being a good friend. Mm-hmm.